In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all our steps on the path of omniscience, may these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. Omanjushri, please accomplish this. Hey, good evening. So tonight we continue with probably the most exciting chapter of the book of the whole 20 years of Rime Shedra, basically. My records indicate that we ended on page 328. Do we have any uh, confirmation of that? Thank you, Barbara. Any idea where on page 328 we ended? Was it after the quote or? Well, let's let's refresh our memories where we are in general. So we're looking at um, the chapter is categories of correct evidence, and the three main categories of correct evidence, which is their translation for reasons that that's otherwise, sorry, in uh, other versions or particularly this one that I'm showing on the screen is uh, reasons. And there's three types of reasons. There's nature, effect, and non-observation of something that should be observed if in order to uh, support a conclusion, an inferential logical conclusion. So now we're focusing on the different types of non-observation or non-perception. And there's, there's two types of uh, non-perception or non-observation reasons. Does anyone remember what the two main types are? There is non-observation of something that should appear, that is perceptible, and there's non-observation of things that are un imperceptible. And um, non-observations of things that are imperceptible are things like um, the three realms are imperceptible to a, a, uh, no, a regular sentient being, i.e. non-aria, which are no longer called sentient beings, it turns out. Um, but uh, there are certain things that arias can experience that sentient beings cannot experience. And then there are certain things that certain sentient beings can see that others can't see. There are some people 
Apparently they can see ghosts. Has anybody here ever seen a ghost? I've heard them. <laughs> Neat. So you've heard evidence. And so you concluded there was a ghost there. Why? Put that in the syllogism. Oh. What were the particulars of the situation? What did you hear? Well, okay. I don't know how to put this in a syllogism. <laughs> I had we'll some just describe this situation. I had some preconditioning, which is being told the house was haunted by someone else. Mm. And then heard un, un, heard sounds that couldn't be attributed to anything else. Anything else other than a, a sentient being? Other than, yeah, some kind of... Being. Like it couldn't have been being. wind. It couldn't have right. been just like the settling of houses. They creak a lot. Right. What were the sounds? Um, like sounds of walking, for example. <laughs> and then did you go and look and see if there was anyone there where the sounds were being made? I've had many, I, this is my stepdad's summer house. So I've spent a lot of time there. So I've had many instances like this. Um, so it's wow, usually, I'm too scared. Cool. usually I'm too scared to go look, but <laughs> yeah. very creepy old house at night. Uh, yeah. Often with the, when you turn the lights off and you're falling asleep. Yeah, or watching TV downstairs. That's when they really like to come out. <laughs> oh, because there's other noise that can mask them, sort of, and it makes it scarier. That's neat. Yeah. They're, they're scary, scary guys. Yeah. And so you concluded. Um, uh, so the syllogism, anyone want, uh, want to venture for a syllogism on this? The, the, what's the, what's the probandum? What's the proposition? Emily is asserting what? That she has a TV in her house. Okay, there's a ghost in the house. So there's, there's a, a locus is the house and there's a, a being called a ghost. And what's the supporting evidence? That there are sounds, unexplained sounds. That's good. Okay, so uh, flesh out the unexplained part. Um, sounds that cannot, well, cannot be explained through observation, direct observation. Um, or, or through logical reasoning, like, I know I'm the only person in this house. But the key is that these are sounds that require, um, th that are not uh, self-arising sounds. They're not, you know, when we looked at the different types of sounds, they're sounds created by sentient beings and they're sounds that aren't. And... Um, you're asserting that there are sounds <clears throat> that um, were cr were created by a sentient being, but there was a non-observation of the sentient being. And therefore, you conclude that the producer of the sounds is a ghost. Yes. So there's a ghost in the house, and the reason is because um, 
it uh it really like uh re really what you're asserting is that there are sounds produced in the house that are not were not produced by an observable being right something like that right and so but i'm also not sure where the confirmation of other people having in the past also had the same experience backs up my maybe that's irrelevant to this syllogism but for my experience of, that contributes yeah it's a, it's a different type of remember when we when we went through the different types of um supporting evidence there's factual re reasoning from fact and then there's reasoning from a report very and there's various types of reports there's reliable reports and there's unreliable reports and then there was reasoning from scripture and in the buddhist tradition they dispense with scripture and reports as being not capable of producing the um conviction that observable fact has and so if you if you'd been told by other people there were um ghosts in the house and you had walked or stayed in the house and had not experienced anything odd you would not be able to conclude that there you would not be able to uh, affirm or, or agree with them right yes and that was my experience i was like oh whatever and then i stayed there by myself and that confirmed it for me <laughs> has it ever happened when you stayed there not by yourself that's a good question less is less of an issue <laughs> so you've, you've been there like with your has your son heard them have you been there with your son no i've been there with my son but i haven't told him the house is haunted oh that's a good test yeah. case i know <laughs> have you been there with your husband yeah i wonder if tyler's with them most people in my family have experienced the ghosts in one way or another and so is it always when they're alone that's the i mean it'd be interesting to look yeah, at yeah. Uh, so we, yeah we've never family. been there yeah right we've never been there as a family and been like oh my god there's the ghost it's always like it's happened to me when I've been there with other people, but if I'm the only person who's still awake at night, for example, mm. I hear the ghost. Ah, so it runs in the family. It's the gene. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, someone was was murdered in the house, so that doesn't help either. Back a, a century ago. Anyway, <laughs> so there's a lot, to, a lot of reports, but then also various people have had actual experience. But always in terms of sound, any any like visuals. My stepdad, whose house it is, said he he saw a ghost, but I think he was on an acid trip at the time, so it doesn't count. That's pretty good. That that's still that's still pretty good, I think. <laughs> um, so they use this example of uh, uh, non-observation of phenomena that are not perceptible and so to um to emily ghosts are not perceptible um so she doesn't see ghosts but she hears them 
and then there's then there's the type of non-observation cause of things that are perceptible normally and um the non-observation of those and presumably the the reason why this book goes on and the tradition goes on endlessly going through the different nuances and mostly different categories of these two types of uh, non-observation is why what, what is what, what is the uh, uh, drum roll getting to you know what is the situation that we're like trying to uh, work on getting like a really firm grasp of so that it produces conviction um, the, um, the, well okay I'll, uh, it's a relate to like not finding ego when you look for it bingo totally right so it's non-observation of the self and um, is is the self something that uh, should be perceivable or is not perceivable? It doesn't exist, so it should not be perceivable. Okay, so one way of looking at it is that it, it doesn't exist, and so something that doesn't exist is not perceptible. So then what is the um, object of grasping of fundamental ignorance well, it's, um think it's, it's concept. real I'm sorry this we think it's real yeah so so when i said the object of grasping of fundamental ignorance Fundamental ignorance thinks there's a self, assumes a priori that, that there is a self. And um, so we grasp at the idea of a self. And the, the way that we can see, I think the, I think the key is that the way that we conceive of the self is as something that should be perceptible. There are ways of conceiving of the self as something uh, um, imperceptible, but we don't actually grasp at a type of self that's imperceptible. What type of self would be imperceptible? Well, like souls and things like that? But isn't in, it, in what is aspect? People... I'm sorry, what? In, in what way is the soul imperceptible? Did I say that right? Um, yeah. Um, <clears throat> what 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 characteristic of characteristics of the idea of soul makes it imperceptible? Well, I, I mean, I'm sort of thinking in terms of the the logic of that it it doesn't <clears throat> have you know location shape color form you know all of those um observable you know things things we can observe with the senses so the, uh, and the soul does not perform a function 
<laughs> Given that so, it doesn't exist, I imagine not. Although, it, I mean, it, though it, uh, I mean. You know, don't, don't, don't jump to that conclusion. Let's, no, no, let's because sort of I wouldn't it. say, I don't know that I would say that. It, I would think that somebody who believes in it, it may perform a function. Okay. So does something that perform, if something performs a function, should it be perceptible? I mean, I think it kind of depends on your worldview, right? <laughs> well, should the effects be perceptible? Should the effects be yes. Perceptible? I think we can all agree that that if it performs a function, if it has an effect, then it, the effect should be perceptible. What what effect does the soul? What function? What is the activity of a soul? Or, or is it just a philosophical idea of something that is completely inconceivable? Again, it kind of depends on your worldview. I mean, most yeah, of the people yeah. sitting here None probably us, don't, don't buy into this. that idea. <laughs> so we probably can't speak to its function in our lives. But I would... It is... It, oh, sorry, go ahead. Go, go ahead. Go ahead, Cynthia. No, no, go ahead. I'm just thinking about, you know, like uh, in strict Protestant thought, for example, they diverged from Catholics in implying that there's a set number of souls that are going to make it to heaven. So you can tell if somebody's on that list already by the way that they behave. Um, so if a, wow. it's like this twisted, I know, very manipulative, but it's like. Um, wow, I never so realized in that. that. In, that Wait, instance, in that case, doesn't it mean that it doesn't matter how people act? They're going to either get in or not get in based you on. You would think that, but the thing is, right, so there's this set list, right? The thing is, that's what I'm trying to get at, is the way you behave is a, it's almost a, got a slight karmic circular, it, but obviously, you're, you're right. But the way you behave or present yourself on earth is based upon whether or not your soul is already on the heaven list. So it's this way of kind of tricking people, I think, into behaving really well, because it's sort of like, if someone's displaying really negative behavior, that means they can't possibly be on the heaven list. So that could be considered a function of, or not a function, but a, a uh, effect of the function of the soul, like the sort of output that of the is behavior so cool. in that example. That is so cool. I would have thought it'd be the other way, way around in Christianity, but uh, of like, you know, if you act a certain prescribed way, then you get into heaven. Yeah, that's, that's, the Catholic, that's, that's the Catholic. That's the Catholic worldview is and that's why in catholicism you can confess and be forgiven and they don't have confession and this is very strict this is like you know reformation or protestantism but the idea is you're stuck with your lot but if you are really on the heaven list you're going to be behaving in a really virtuous way but then it sounds like the mind trick that they're dealing with is you don't want anybody to know that you're on the bad list, so you pretend to be good, essentially. But that's God knows. God is the one who knows. So that's why. Right. It, but, even but it basically means that the thoughts is a problem. What's the inner? Th that's why it's, it's where Puritanism comes from, because that's why even even if you have a thought, an impure thought, even that is an example that perhaps you are not on the heaven list so it it really it sort of gaslights people into managing their own behavior 
That's but ghastly. yet it's still a sort of an inside-out thing because the lists are already there. I mean, this notion—it's you're saying it's predestination, and yet it's it's weird that it it's pre it's a theory of predestination that is designed to manipulate people to behave better, yes. which is really weird. <laughs> Very effective too. That's bizarre. So, how about in in our, um, a non-theistic tradition? The idea is that the normal Joe, so to speak, the prototypical Mary and Joe human person, they are attached to um, them, themselves. They're attached to themselves. And um, they, they are attached to a type of self that um has causes and effects and has a nature would you agree what are the what are some of the natures of that self permanent yeah it's it's permanent in the sense of ongoing and it seems like one thing, you know, the usual list of three things, right? So it has that that quality. And then um, it, it, what is the, uh, this, that's the nature. What is the productivity or cause effect, cause result qualities of that self? It causes the next moment in its continuum causes uh well that's the presumption is that it, it's an existing thing and therefore does that but um how does it manifest in a way that's uh perceptible to the normal person what what do we think or feel like the self does what does the self do all day long So sleep. Nothing. Experiences are life. The self is the one that decides what to think, what to do, what to say, whether to move your arm or your toes, right? The self is very right. busy, right? It's constantly doing things. As we're sitting here, ourselves are doing like Tons of little things constantly, moving our bodies. Uh, <laughs> and as, as Morgan said, it's the experiencer as well. I feel like that's the common way it feels to me. Yeah. yeah like it's, it's not just in a closed off room getting reports. Like it's feeling and doing. Right. So presumably, so, so good. So presumably the, the drum roll buildup of this very long presentation of different types of non-observation causes and results is leading to somehow addressing this situation where um, we, we project or we conceive of a self that has all of these qualities. It has these natures, it has these um, karmic cause and effect activities. And 
<clears throat> presumably the the presumption is is that um, the fact that we're not able to actually observe the self directly in, is a, a refutation of the existence of the self because we should be able to perceive the self. We sh something that is able to cause something else should be observable. Is that is that a reasonable scenario? I think that's what we're getting to. It's like when you hear noises in a room that sound like a person, you're like, well, someone must be in there changing the channel on the TV and, and clotting around in his shoes. It's like we see these bodies making all this noise. So someone must be in there doing all this. Maybe that's just what you said. Yeah. Like okay. So that's a good example. That's, that's a good example. There's, there's got to be someone in here or else where's all this coming? All this. This is getting back good. to Emily's ghost. Yeah, exactly. So, so uh, we have There's Eric. There's the Geist, the spirit. There's this guy named Eric on the Zoom screen, and he he was just speaking, and so there is this Eric. And um, what did we observe to support the conclusion that there was an Eric? We hear him. We see this picture in a little box with cats. And uh, do any of the uh, observable features of this thing that we call the self of Eric or Eric himself support the presumption that Eric is ongoing? unchanging well those are two different words the they are let's start part, with unchanging he's a going concern <laughs> the ongoing part i would say we have evidence of ongoing you know we've seen him around for a long time sometimes in live forms sometimes in zoom forms etc but unchanging no I, I think there's changes his beard might be different at a given time or his hair length or this or that, you know, so he's not unchanging. Okay, so good. So immediately the support for projecting the uh, self of Eric are physical attributes that we can experience through what senses? Sight, hearing. Sight and hearing. We rarely get to touch Eric at this these days, given our Zoom land world. Um, but is Eric the his head? You know, we can go through that exercise, and we all know where, um, you know, uh, obviously where that ends. And. Um, So we're, we're, we're presuming that there's something inside of Eric that is interacting with his body. Is that the self of Eric? There's some self of Eric that is interacting with his body and making his body move and produce sounds. Is that a fair statement? 
And I feel like to count push back against what Cynthia said, people really do feel like it's the same little guy and the same little something in there. It's not like when you go through a toll booth every day and you're like, oh, well, maybe today it's a different toll booth attendant in there. I don't know who works Saturdays. You're like, when I show up on the Zoom screen, you always think it's the same guy in there. I do too. But like, there is some sameness, right? Or maybe you do think it's a different toll booth attendant. I don't well, I guess that gets to the what Derek was going towards, which is the idea that while the external phenomena might alter a little bit over time, that there that we have this presumption that both relative to ourselves and relative to the other beings that we interact with, that there's some ongoing ex existence of something we think of as them. Um, obviously, is not just what we see and hear, because what we see and hear changes on a momentary basis, and this other presumed thing um, we presume does not. We presume it's sort of ongoing. Eric, do you do you want to choose door number one or door number two? Is this just a random choice, or did did you outline what's any information about these doors? I forgot. It's Let's totally see. random. I'll take two. <laughs> You sure of that? Absolutely. <laughs> I don't know where I'm going at. I had some notion that I was going to come up with something. You get the dinette set and a Maserati and... Uh... <laughs> well, the, the, I think the contradictory thing is that there's this presumption that there's there's some part of Eric that's interacting with the the parts that are visibly impermanent of Eric. There's something in Eric that's in, that's permanent that's interacting with those, and we can't observe, or Eric can't observe anything inside of him that's uh, not changing. The idea that we are the same person day after day, we can't observe that person, presumably, right? Anyway, let's skim through the, the readings and see if they uh, bring us I like closer. the way that you're, you're making us realize that the way we think now that we're so sure of is also inferential. In that, what that way, feels... say? That makes the whole thing like really powerful of like, why are we doing all this? It's like, oh, right. Well, this, what we believe is we can't. Yeah, this, this is good. That, so, yeah. So to, to conclude that that's right is, is that we, we firmly believe that there's some part of us that we can't really observe, but that is interacting with observable things and is producing observable results. And anything that is able to interact and produce results of those natures should be observable, I think is the presumption, right? But uh, when you look for the self either in the body, you know, there's, there's no self in the body, uh, 
And when we look for the self in the mind, we can't find the self in the mind. We, with the body, we can look physically, or someone else can cut us apart and look for it. Um, and then with the mind, we have to look in, in our own mind and see if we can find out who's looking. <laughs> and we've, we've, uh, we now realize that looking for the looker is a, it's a difficult practice. Hopefully we've all tried doing that, looking at the looker and not finding. Okay, anyway, so page uh, 328, let's start at the bottom where there's a, a list, since we all love lists. Neil, hi. Wow. Neil Armstrong, you look like you're from outer space. Are you with another organization, Kids Rise? Is that your new your new gig connection problems is um, you're muted neil we can't hear you neil sorry i'm sorry i'm late too are we still stuck in this idea that self is a thing as opposed to a process or a dynamic yes we are okay i i am am i alone wow. in that i it seems like I thought that was resolved a long time ago. <laughs> but I still act that way. I, I, I still am completely uh, programmed as if it's a thing. But every time you realize that you act that way or think that way, you realize you're wrong. And, and ideally, I let go a little bit. But okay. I, I, it's impulsive. I, I can't. It's, com it's more than impulsive. It's compulsive. It's totally uh, compulsive behavior, OCD. Yeah. yeah, it's the reason for the distorted perception of reality, but we know our perception of reality is distorted for that reason. So all we do is, you know, work from there without having to try to figure out why we are compulsive that way. That's right. It, okay. We don't have to figure out why we are. We just are, and we have to figure out how to undo it adjust right exactly yeah and it's like we we all manage that compulsion uh in public you know like and to some extent in private we all manage this compulsive uh, behavior uh, but it's it's publicly acceptable it's commonly acceptable to act as if you have a self so it's supported by uh, uh, conventional norms but that's precisely it. It's just a convenience. It's just, you know, a, a social lubricant. Yeah, it's actually encouraged, right, to have a, a strong sense of self. Uh, well, you'd have to, you know, again, you're going to have to define your terms and very carefully there. I don't think, I don't think anyone is thinking it's encouraged to have a strong sense of self in order to have a distorted perception of reality. What is the case then? that having a you know strong sense of self as, as a, a kind of a, a notion is helpful uh, to function but but no more than that no one's suggesting it's a real thing that's observable in the sense that other sense perceptions are observable it's you know at most it's a concept
say again when you said that it's it's uh we have a strong sense of self so we can function adequately something like that uh better so that you know our shared or non-shared social conventions and norms can interact productively i mean even if it's a question of you know skillful means you we humans need a sense of self but you know I, I think it's easy you can have a sense of self and still realize that there is no self and that, again it's somewhat semantical um because you're talking about self as a thing when it's you know i think up, other than you're performing a function i'm not sure that it's an observable thing it's funny we do we do exhibit contradictory behavior though if if our main goal is to uh preserve ourselves why do we eat things that are not good for us why do we do that conditioned behavior are lots of reasons you know lack of control you know we don't know any better We're conditioned by the companies who make the foods. I mean, again, you're assuming that you know we're here to maximize self in some fashion or perpetuate self, as opposed to simply self as a manifestation of existence. One manifestation and a very poorly understood one. Although I think like eating a bunch of potato chips is also a method of maximizing self because it's very pleasurable in the moment. So it's really, you know, but that, uh, would define, engaging. that would suggest you know, yeah or smoking pleasure a cigarette is, or whatever yeah. right yeah 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 um but yeah i mean i think in non non-buddhist situations many people would say that the self is an observable thing with if they haven't been exposed to this type of thought yeah so follow let's follow that stream of thought in and uh what is the observable self from a conventional point of view you know, like sort of the, the body of a person, their personality traits. And, you know, to me, pretty quickly, it starts to just become a conglomeration of causes and effects. But I think for people not used to Buddhist thought, they would just say that that is an observable self. And if you believe in the, like heaven or whatever, they might say that that self continues even after death in the sort of the form of a soul. But, um, People who don't believe in that would say it's here observable for the duration of a person's bodily lifetime. And there's got to be two components. There's got to be the externally observable by third parties and then whatever's going on for the observed object. You know, whatever's going on in, in, internally for them. I mean, Both what I find when I... What I find when I speak to non-Buddhist people about the idea of the self, uh, they're willing to say, yeah, you know, I see that the self doesn't exist in the way that I think it does, but they wouldn't be willing to go beyond that and just say the self doesn't exist as an object. They would still say, and I think we all probably feel day to day, like there's still something there. And right? isn't, that still just a a isn't that just a definition issue when we say there is something what are we talking about? We're simply talking about the manifestation of energy through this body 
in our continuous fashion or continual fashion that we choose to call a person or a self. Are we talking right. about anything, anything more than that? Uh, I mean, I think people who aren't used to, who aren't Buddhists would say that that is an observable self, an observable thing, that the self is an observable thing and it does and we, exist. And we Buddhists would agree with that. That that's yeah, a terrible thing. In what sense? How, how do we observe it? Uh, just as you said, by through the sense perceptions, through our understanding of it, all our ability to perceive can be brought to bear on what we choose to call a self, a person. I, I see some skeptical looks from my colleagues. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it gets to, into, no, I mean, I think it's the, the observability part, I think is correct. The problem is when you get down to calling it a thing or, a, you know, and, you know, getting into the, the, the nouns and entities and things like that, because sure, there's observability, but the difference is, for example, you know, if you haven't gone through the logic of one and many and all these other things that, that take apart the notion that you can have a thing that manifests as many things, you know, that's, that's, that's part of the difference between, let's say, a typical educated Buddhist, let's say, and a typical ordinary person that's never thought about those things. Right. Is that they, the it, logic it, of it doesn't, it doesn't occur to anybody. Is it any different from a table? It's the same self? principles. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Let's talk it about is. that. Um, <laughs> Sorry, Morgan. Does not exist. The table exists, table exists conventionally. The self doesn't exist at all. Well, it does it's if you define it correctly. Define it correctly, not, then. Define the self correctly. Just from a Buddhist, perspective, from ahead, a Buddhist perspective, the self isn't some a thing that's misperceived. It's nothing that is made up. But but uh, Neil is is countering and and presenting the sort of common person's misconception of a self so i i'd like him to flesh that out so to speak a little bit and then for morgan to uh respond to to that so in what way is is this self observable what what can we observe that supports the idea of a self um so first of all we have to talk make clear what we're talking about when we use the word self Okay. And when I use the word self, I am simply referring to an agglomeration of characteristics manifested in a human, let's say. Could be in an animal or some other conscious sentient being, but that's the self. Are we talking about something other than that? An agglomeration yeah. of what? An agglomeration of what? Whatever you want to say in the similar way, there's an agglomeration of characteristics that constitute a table. And so it's purely a conventional nomenclature. Except you use the word consciousness in there when talking about the self ascribed to a sentient being versus table, which I think is an important so That might be factor. one difference between a table and a self of a, let's just say, of, of myself, my person. Um, but, you know, you could have a similar difference in characteristics between a table and a car, right? There are different characteristics. That that my self known includes my consciousness or my mental characteristics, I think is simply a one additional characteristic. But in terms of 
you know, trying to identify the phenomenon, they're similar, is my argument. Morgan, do you want to respond to that? The, the table um, myself? The, I mean, there, there, like, like Cynthia said, there are a lot of ways to respond to it from, you know, one and many, or um, uh, just lack of cause and effect. I mean, there's lots of ways you can you can look at it. Um, I think the 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 simplest way is just like you say, an agglomeration of characteristics. Which characteristics are part of the self and which aren't part of the self, and do those characteristics stay the same from one instant to the next? The answer is no and no, no for me and no for the table. Yeah, I, I mean, I think from the point of view, sorry. Because there's nothing there. There's no, there's no agglomeration of, of characteristics that's true from one minute to the next, then there's no thing there. Right, no, no. Uh, I would say as long as there's an agglomeration of characteristics, even though they change from one minute to the next, one moment to the next, um, to the extent that you have any degree of continuity or continuation over time of those characteristics, mm, that's what we mean by a self. Mm, mm, that's what we mean by a table. This is where conscious, I mean, why for me, the word consciousness is very important because I do think like as Morgan is getting to in this kind of traditional view of it, the reason a table is an observable thing and a con and self is not is because I think when people define self rather than just saying a human body, they are really talking about like um, this conglomeration of characteristics that includes a consciousness that's kind of at the center, sort of running the show. Ego would be another word for it, which the table does not have, but all sentient beings do. And that that is the unobservable, non-real thing that people, sentient beings tend to believe is actually there, but it's not. Mm. So first of all, I would say, I'm not sure I don't that a table doesn't have a consciousness. Uh, do we know that? Can we know that? Um, so, but I take your point uh, about consciousness being perhaps, you know, one of the more significantly different characteristics uh, for a self, but the fact that there's a consciousness involved as a characteristic, why does that mean it's non-observable? Because it's, I mean, again, it's, as you say, it's the body as inhabited, that's the right word, or as conjoined with the consciousness, that's the self. And again, it just seems to me a semantic exercise. Well, I would I would venture to say that in one sense, I, I think I could sort of agree with both in different ways. In one sense, I think table or self are the same in the sense of agglomeration of characteristics and being ascribed an identity that is just a concept. You know, in both cases, there's some concept involved that is applied to the thing. But I think that the um, there is a slight difference, I think, in the observability because the all the features of the table are observable yet still applying the label of table is a, a conceptual overlay in the case of the self there's something that i think there is something that's sort of believed to be there but is unobservable so i i think that you know so in some ways i think that, you, that it's true that the self and the table could be viewed as Similarly, aggregate, you know, aggregates of characteristics. What is, it, 
with the concept applied in a what simple is unobservable in the, in the, what is unobservable in the self the well, self itself i would have flipped the question what is observable in the self so everything let's start you, with the table everything that you observe let's start with the table where's the table where is the table in your mm. mind yes so there's there's parts there's a flat surface and there's legs but is there a table is there something that possesses those different parts supposedly not no there, there, show me the table something that we call a table you know here's one right here I, I call it a table you call it a table we agree let's call this phenomenon a table let's call the, you, let's so the call phenomenon person itself so the phenomena serves as the basis of designation of the term table right and uh table is a general idea right of things that are flat supporting surfaces <laughs> right but table itself doesn't actually exist separate from the parts okay does the table possess the parts like is it the sum of the parts is that a table uh i guess you need the minimum amount of the aggregate to have enough people conventionally agree that they'll call it a table and that and makes it a table you just have a three-legged table you know like the majority rules uh yeah if we're talking about conventional naming sure okay you said that it is a table what's the it that phenomenon that we are identifying which phenomena can you show us can you point your camera at it your you have your background blurred i don't know if oh. <laughs> if uh, there's something you don't want to if you uh, don't want to show us but i uh, know hold on a second we could talk about your eyeglasses okay you there you see go. those yeah. that. so um are, are, is that a pair of eyeglasses? Uh, again, we'd have to define our nomenclature. Yeah, I mean, I would call it a pair of eyeglasses, sure. So you're, wear, you're wearing a pair of eyeglasses, right? A yep. pair implies that there's two. Yep. So there's two eyeglasses? Yep. Can you point to them? Those are the two eyeglasses. And then um, is there anything else that makes up the eyeglasses so the eyeglasses are the eyeglasses lenses in the frame yep you know we can take it down as much as we want but what's your point <laughs> um is there is there um uh you, you pointed at the lenses and you you uh, mentioned that there's frames are there is there anything else included notepads you know we could go on and on what else is there nose pads then there's a uh, little um screws screws oh i don't know hinges yeah there's hinges those cool little hinges and screws and so um all of those different parts makes an eyeglass a, a pair of eyeglasses Why is that? Is that funny? You don't, need, you don't need all of them. You know, you could have it made all in one piece. You know, again, what's the point? 
Yeah, so what is the point? Um, the point is that- well, the point is that there's not, that there's not a, a, a pair of eyeglasses separate from the conventional nomenclature that names those pieces put together as eyeglasses. There's not right. some- or, or something like that, right? Because you can have a different- it's not something ultimately that's eyeglasses. There's just a conventional agreement that there are eyeglasses. Right. This phenomenon exists and we're going to call it eyeglasses, right? Um, not that it exists. That's that's saying ultimate. Um, they're saying that the phenomenon is observed, that it appears. Okay. Um, and that there are eyeglasses conventionally, not ultimately. Right. There, right. there, are, there are observable features. Right, and you say you can't do that with the self. And we we have a conventional agreement that observable features of those sorts, when they're arranged in a certain way, we then apply the nomenclature eyeglasses. But as Morgan is pointing out, the, the actual eyeglasses don't really have a separate existence, do they? Nope. It's a concept, it's a name for an agglomeration of characteristics and pieces or whatever you want to call that. And are we, are you attached to your eyeglasses? Attached emotionally? Uh, yeah. Or practically. Yeah, practically. Oh, I hope not. <laughs> so if uh, they broke, you wouldn't blink? Uh, blink? Uh, you know, would I have an emotional reaction if I, I'd probably be more emotionally reacting if I lost them than if I broke. Okay. So if you, if you lost them, you would, you would have an emotional reaction. So you have an attachment to the eyeglasses. Is, is it the attachment to the idea of eyeglasses or is it the actual function that they perform? The function, I think. So when we say that we're attached to uh, a self, we- And by attached, you mean an emotional reaction or something? That would well, let's, let's skip that part. Let's build up like we did with the eyeglasses. So uh, we said that there's observable features, uh, in this case, parts, that we uh, apply a conventional nomenclature to. So what are the observable parts of the self? Uh, body, consciousness, as Emily says, uh, and consciousness would include probably, you know, like memory and things like that. Those are part of the self or those are part of you, the, the conventional you? That's, that's what I mean by self. My self, you know, that's my self would be my body, my mind. What if your body and mind were separated? Uh, then I probably wouldn't think of either as myself. Maybe my mind, but not so much. But if so my mind was in your body, I think it's in either of them. The Say self again? isn't in either. It's in both of them together. Uh, yes, it's probably more in my mind than in my body. But when we talk about the glasses, my mind can't exist in my body, as far as I'm aware. So. You say those are your glasses. How do you know those are your glasses? Because mm, nobody else is claiming them. <laughs> I think they're my glasses. 
Ah, then you'll have to prove it because possession is nine-tenths of the law. <laughs> and what, are you a lawyer? <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> um, so those are your glasses and, and uh, they belong to you. Did you buy them? Did. You bought them. Do you have a receipt? I could Can you prove it? Find one. I could find one, yeah. So they belong to you. So do they belong to you in the way that the body belongs to yourself? No. What's the difference? Uh, one, one embodies the other, and the glasses, I do not embody the glasses. But why did you use the same nomenclature? You said, my glasses and my body. Oh, uh, again, convention. I thought we agreed that convention was everything. That there, uh, there well, only you is know, convention. <laughs> to go back to your original point, yes, that convention is very determinative. So in convention, we say that the self has a body in the same way that Neil has a pair of glasses. Your body has a pair of glasses. Body. Well, that's an interesting question. I, I would imagine... Is it possible to have a self without a body? That's a great question. Is there is is it possible? What would a self without a body look like? Are we talking about whether it's possible to have a self without a body or a mind without a body? Right. Self. And those two things are not necessarily exactly the same, right? They are not. Self, a self without a body. It would have to be some kind of expression of a self of, you know, I, in other words, if I had an extensive, you know, video diary thing uh, that might uh, approximate. Uh, Do you a believe in, a, in an afterlife? Sorry? Do you believe in I, an, afterlife? an afterlife? Do I believe in an afterlife? No, not particularly. Okay, so at, at death, then the self dies along with the body. Uh, death is self dies. Yes, I would say that's correct, or ceases to manifest. Yeah. And is the self coterminous with the body? Mm, I expect so, unless you can find a way to perpetuate consciousness. So, if your arm was amputated, would your self decrease? No. Would you have less self? No. That's illogical. You Why? just said that the self and the body were coterminous. That doesn't mean to say that they're identical. It means that they are um, they are spread evenly throughout one another. No, that's not what coterminous means. Well then, well, then otherwise you're saying that the self has an arm, has arms. No, the body has arms. You said the self has a body. That doesn't mean to say the self has arms. Isn't the body that include arms? Uh, the body includes arms usually. <laughs> you can have you can have a body without arms, can't you? That's what I'm getting to. Yeah. So would you still have a self in that case? Sure. You would have a, a self without arms. I would say you probably have a self until you don't, as Emily suggests, until you don't have consciousness. And then so, you know, so a, a comatose body. Does that have a self? Mm. So do we say do we say my consciousness? When we say my consciousness or my body, is it the self's body and consciousness? 
No. Uh, again, I guess self for me isn't this kind of little gnome sitting somewhere, you know, controlling and pulling all the levers. It's simply where we started, an agglomeration of characteristics, which includes consciousness, somewhere for consciousness to exist or, you know, function, and that normally is a body. So but, we agreed it's... so. Then, then we agree it's similar to the projection of a name onto an agglomeration of parts right. known, as a, known as a table. Uh, right. And in this case, you know, known, known as a, a human person, that, you know, that's a self. And, and we agree that the... Yeah, what are we arguing? Sorry, that? You're arguing we, the conventional existence of the self. What you're arguing for is the conventional existence of the self, that the self exists conventionally. Okay, yep, I'll buy that. That is a, simply Which, a conventional naming process, right? And are, we, and are we saying something more than that, something different than that? I'm saying something different than that. Okay. Like when a thought occurs in this mind, it feels like someone, the self, had that thought. It doesn't just feel like my thoughts are an agglomeration with my sensations conventionally called the self. I mean, in a way, I intellectually agree with you that that all makes it, like sense on paper, but it doesn't feel like that to me. It feels like there's an I who keeps having these ideas. Okay, so now we're talking about something different, Eric. Now we're talking about how you feel about yourself. I'm not interested in how you feel about yourself because that's such a, you know that's such a wild and subjective. I thought we were trying to be more objective about this. Like, is there a phenomenon that's observable, because, which we call the self? And I would say depends how you define the self. But if you define it as an embodied consciousness, yes, in a human, yes. Well, how can I that because that's what. But that's what it seems keeps making me angry all the time. These thought, like mm -hmm. it seems like there's some relationship between the problems in my life and that I, like, you know, I know we're getting into like, I'm kind of taking a dharmic line here and I'm like swerving back to my own discomfort and pain and suffering. But like, like, yeah, it's like, I totally agree with you, Neil, but in a way it's like, I don't know what to do with that. But then when but, I look at like the but, problems I'm having in my life, I like, who's this guy who keeps having all the thoughts? But this, this, this is what you do with that, is you simply recognize that that is not real. You know, that is just, you know, you <laughs> That's what I've been doing here, trying to do that. Right? And, you know, but I, you know, we seem to spend so much time trying to all agree that there is no self when we know, right, there is no little man in the head, but it's helpful to simply say that's what we mean by a self. Well, there's two different things here. One is you're saying the self exists conventionally. So that means you're saying it doesn't exist ultimately, which is what causes all the problems. If it existed ultimately, or our belief that problems it exists ultimately conventionally, causes, problems, yeah. mm -hmm. causes problems. But you're saying that it does exist conventionally. But from a dharmic perspective, the, the 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 position is that the self doesn't even exist conventionally. And that I think is actually to Eric's point, you know, an unnecessary hang up. I don't think we need to get to the point of saying that it doesn't exist conventionally in order for us to be able to improve our ability to deal. 
What about um, the table? And what's the difference? Like the table is, exists conventionally, but I don't know if the self, if you can find, you know, the same kind of. Um, mm, yeah, I would argue that you can, Barbara. Right, exactly. That's exactly the issue. And just as Morgan is saying, the table doesn't exist ultimately either. Not, but, I do, but I Sorry. do. But I do think it's important. Right, I do think it's important that to to work with the idea that the self does not exist conventionally, because that's, I, Eric. I think this is what you're talking about. That's what we are all walking around behaving like. And that's the cause of so much suffering. And I do I think there's a reason why egolessness of self and egolessness of dharmas, even though ultimately they're both true, are are treated, you know, somewhat differently, or you know, you kind of alternate between them or work with one and then the other. I think there's a reason for that because it is different. I, I, this must be the case for everyone. It is different for me to say that table doesn't exist ultimately. That is different for me to work with than for me to work with. I don't exist. You know, myself right. doesn't exist. You know, those That's are different experiences. With. We're all coming from a first person perspective, no matter how hard we try not to. Uh, we're all coming from that, right? And all of our observations of all of our universes we each operate within, are, we can only work with what we have from yeah. our senses and our minds and stuff. So I do think it's important. To, to acknowledge that or work with what it means that the self doesn't exist conventionally in the way I think that the that's table very, does. Very well said. And I think you, were, you and I are exactly the same place, Emily. I think that as long as you know, in fact, that it's the same for the self and the table, then yes, I guess, I guess it's harder uh, emotionally, personally to say, I don't exist in that, in that way. But, you know, and I'm okay, not suggesting okay, that I to do that, um, but I definitely think logically it's exactly the same. Well, but to, to precisely parallel the table and the self and the person, the self of the table and the self of the person, the table exists conventionally. The self of the table does not exist conventionally. And, and that's, what, that's what we mean to say the table exists conventionally is it has no self. And the person, the self of the person does not exist conventionally. It doesn't exist even by convention. The person exists conventionally, but the hmm. self of the person does not. Oh, okay. The, the agglomeration, of agglomeration of characteristics that you call a self is a person. No. And that hmm. exists conventionally. Okay. And that okay. is not a self. Okay. So what's the difference between a self and a person? A self is um, believed to be unitary, independent, and persistent. Who believes that? And, and if you look at the self of a person, you'll see that nothing, there's nothing there that actually fits that definition. There's nothing, that's in the, there's nothing independent in you. There's nothing unitary in you. There's nothing that's, 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 that's unique and, 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 and distinct from the world. And there's nothing in you that's persistent from one minute to the next. Okay. Everything changes. Thoughts change. Yep. Everything changes. I think we're just talking about the definition of a self now, right? And if you attribute those three characteristics in your definition of a self, then of course that doesn't exist. Um, but that's not what we mean when we talk about a self. 
what we mean. It's how we behave when we think about ourselves. Well, okay. So what, Neil, what is your sense then of what we mean? Uh, that there's no distinction between a self and a person. That's your view on this. But, uh, yes, but when, so that's what I understand when I use the term self. But you understand something different when you use the term self. And it seems to me you want to understand something different so you can prove it doesn't exist. That seems like well, a pointless. I mean, I think that's that's the exercise that Buddhism, you know, is highlighting is the the way in which we confuse ourselves With by our by taking the um, our actual experience and freezing it into you know this sort of amorphous, undefinable yet believed to be existent thing which we then prove doesn't exist right a way a way, a, a way to put it is there's a person here and <clears throat> this person wouldn't mean anything to me unless i thought it was me unless i thought this person was myself if i didn't think this person was myself i would be able to behave detached and i wouldn't suffer the way that i do i believe this person is me. Me is self equals this person. They're different. I believe that I have a self that has this person, that owns it, that, that, that possesses it. It is mine. And that's the problem. Yeah, that's definitely the problem because I'm thinking that me, this person, has a continuity but that's probably as far as I go when I think of me, this person, this self. It's just that continuity in this body is the self. But you're using person and me interchangeably, and you can't do that. Because me is more than the person. It's it different is? than the person. It's different than the person. Me is what possesses the person. No. Me, me is, is what holds and controls oh, why, the person. Why is it different? Okay, that's interesting. Um, you said my body. Right. As opposed to this body. That's just, again, that's just um, habit. That's just language. It's, just, it's an innate. But it, right. It, but you say when I, when I use possessive pronouns, you think that somehow means that I have a belief that there's a separate thing from me that possesses if you use a possessive because pronoun because otherwise you don't care about this right. uh, yeah. i don't know about the caring part uh, morgan uh, you know you could care equally about other people um indeed we should right i i can't maybe you can but i can't i can only i can i care about myself much more than i care about other people well so, that's probably I, true I uh, for all of us but um i'm, I'm not sure that it's a logical why is that it was emotional, you know, it's not, um, it's not a, uh, it's not a, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not a phenomenological uh, issue. It's a purely emotional one. Um, and, you know, it's an indication of our lack of evolution or something. So I just want to throw out you though, then in this whole thing with me and my and all that, on one hand, it could be viewed as indicative of a sense of possession. On the other hand, I would also say, 
it also in the functions as a sort of shorthand, just like mm -hmm. names and all sorts of other designations that we use. So mm -hmm. I think we should be careful to recognize that, that even if one were um, fairly clear about the non-possession, you know, mm. might still to use the term my or this or that, you know, as a convention, because otherwise you'd have to explain in more detail the thing that is right, in this house that I bought in blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like right. there's this right. shorthand that we use in language. And there's a way in which those that shorthand and these concepts of ownership and self and all that are kind of intermingled. But I think it is possible to recognize the two purposes there just to be. Right. Just I but the reason they're the reason they're the convention in our language is because that's how everybody behaves. So that wouldn't be the convention. We wouldn't be saying my body, my brain, my mind, my relationships, myself. We wouldn't phrase it that way if that wasn't how everybody operated. Yeah. So I also do think the fact that it's conventional language uh, implies that this is how almost everybody goes around functioning. Absolutely. I'm, I'm not saying there aren't norms of of what people think. That's I agree with you on that, but. You know, we could also walk around saying this bot, you know, we could use the term this and, you know, it, it's just that the convention usually right now is to say my or Morgan's or Barbara's or, you know. Which can I like, just ask, can I ask either Morgan or Derek, you're both, uh, so this is an interesting kind of overlay that I'm missing probably. Uh, what is the significance of possession? So if you posit that there's a me separate from the person, which I'm positing, because there's this me that believes <clears throat> this person is mine. And so it cares about this person differently. And it is not therefore detached from this person. It believes that this person is important to it. It believes that this person is real. And it, this me taking ownership of this body behaves in it, behaves toward it in a way that guarantees suffering. Because it cannot, this me cannot achieve a t t detachment from it. Okay. And we know that's not the best way to approach things. And we think that the way to address the fact that it's not the best way to approach things is to dilute or eradicate the sense of me. Because, well, because it's, to go, it's to go forth and investigate and see if we can find this me. And once we and don't. The idea is we can't find the me, we can find the person. The agglomeration of characteristics, the, the continuum of this conventional um, existence. We can find the person, but we can't find the me. So the difference between the person and the me is the emotional reaction to the person? The me is the thing that believes that the, the, the person exists. The me is the thing that believes itself exists and believes that and believes that the person is important to it and is owned by it in a way that causes suffering. Okay. And the me it's believes the me. it possesses the body. The me believes the it possesses me. the person. And possession is nine-tenths of the law. <laughs> the me and if the me didn't, didn't, didn't exist, if, if, if the me understood it didn't exist, which is a strange thing to say, but uh -huh. if it understood it didn't exist, that would be the end of suffering. Right. Now that, that we get, I think. Um, I guess... The idea of the me separate from the body or indeed from the mind, from the consciousness, um, we are separating the me from uh, 
mind, right, from consciousness. Yep. Yes, and we do okay. this yeah. subconsciously. And so there's some moment. other thing totally separate and apart from the person and the mind. That's the right, and we're right. we're more attached even to the me than even to the person, the body, uh -huh. and the mind. Uh -huh. uh, or the mind. We're even more attached to me hmm. than any of its possessions. I'm wondering what that is. I'm not sure I caught that much. Okay, all right. And I, I just, I don't know why this came up, but I think the, the when it, if if something happens to make it kind of iffy about the me, then immediately um, it's so uncomfortable that the me reasserts itself. So um, I don't know why I brought. No, that's helpful, Barbara. I, I totally relate to that. I mean, I think, e you know, ego um, is another word we could probably insert for me here, maybe. Uh, ego, you know, in the sort of Trunka Rinpoche way of using the term. And yeah, that feeling of like, if when you do get a glimpse maybe of detachment from the ego, the ego, like in my experience, comes back in like so, so strongly. So Barbara, I can relate. And we want to say that doesn't exist. Right. Can you find it? When you say, can you find observe it? it? Can you observe it? When it when it when it occurs, aren't you observing it? What is when what occurs? As Emily said, when when ego rushes back in, or when Barbara was talking about when you you yourself feels threatened in any sense or challenged, and ego you know rears this ugly head, isn't it observable then? Not except. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Dad. She said there's an ego? I don't think she meant that. Well, not that not that exists. You know, it's I think we're back to this idea of me, like everything else spiraling around me or ego, you can say put my in front of it, right? Like my mind, my emotions, my reactions, my body, my memories, my consciousness. Okay, but so who's the owner of all of that? that is the piece that can't actually be observed. So right. I'm using the label ego or me, but really there's no owner. There's no characteristics there except all of that other stuff orbiting around it that that, that non-existent central piece thinks it, own, it owns. So the interesting thing is that when you were talking about how <sighs> this non-existent ego reasserts itself, um, knowing that it, you know, since we understand at least intellectually that it doesn't exist. So then we have to kind of look at experientially what is actually going on. Like some people kind of use the terms like contraction or, you know, the, there's an experiential quality that we have, like, you know, when Derek does his little games where he insults us all and, you know, that kind of thing, right? And so the, the or you can do it to yourself, of course, or put yourself in situations that, so there's this uh, this observable experience in our stream yeah. of, you know, in our agglomerated experience. Yeah, yourself. And so that's the interesting thing is that our, our language, you know, turns that into an it, you know, and makes it ego. So that's, again, where the semantics get tricky because we immediately start using these terms and, and making them into entities again when they're not. But we understand that there is some essentially habitual pattern that contracts us in some way or does something that, you know, does something to our experience that is recognizable. 
And, and I guess you know that's not that's not what you mean by observable. It's it's experience. You know, it's 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 another aspect of experience. I mean, we have experience of calm, cool, chill, nothing. You know, everything's fine and everything else. And then all of those things are characteristics of you know what I call the self, right? Or and I guess which, I need to, need which to Morgan would just is using the term person. Yeah. I think we have to understand that in a way, using the term person this way is kind of person in a technical sense. It's yeah. it's using the term person to describe that basic set of experience that we go through. It's basically derogatory and he's insulting you. <laughs> you know, one of the things I think that uh, trips us up is that we're all trying to cleave to the way Trump Rinpoche uses the term ego. And he uses ego as the self in some ways, but then he uses ego's ego not as the self in the following way. Ego is the reaction to being insulted, right? And that's a, 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 a complex grouping of psychological characteristics of our mind, right? of the mental factors you know there's all sorts of mental factors and then we experience a physical sensation of this or that you know so i think it would be helpful if we agreed <clears throat> that ego actually exists ego is the person is the sophisticated response of a person uh the, this the uh, sophisticated complex that we call a person that I, is striving I, for its self-existence to preserve itself ego is the attempt to preserve itself and that is observable we see that all the time i, I guess but the the, ego is operating under the pretense that it's preserving something greater that that it, uh, possesses the mind and body Sorry, Stenti, please go. No, that's okay. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have interrupted. Um, yeah, and the only thing concern I have is, I mean, I guess this is where, you know, as Neil is always reminding us, we need the dictionary of definitions to know which terms we're going to use to mean what. Because in some contexts, um, teachers do use the term person to refer to the kind of just basic way of describing our set of experience not tied to ego particularly, but as as distinct from self, the way I think Morgan was using it earlier, I believe. The, it's basically the notion that we're acknowledging somehow the experience that we're having. We're not, we don't deny, you know, in, in denying existence of self, it doesn't mean we're denying our all of our experience. So for some people, they use the term person to, to kind of use as a kind of a generic way of talking about that. So if we, if you then want to equate person to ego, that would sort of just it would change the dictionary. <laughs> That's what I'm doing. I, I'm, I'm suggesting that it clarifies things if we say person mm -hmm. is ego, because the way ego is used in the West is generally that ego has observable characteristics and ego does not possess the complex of mind and body. Hmm. Yeah, that I mean, that would mess me up a little just because I have, but it's from other contexts like, you know, Sukhne Rinpoche, I think, among others, uses the person term in a kind of a, 
a way that you know he he but he lays out a whole bunch of different ways of defining self so it's kind of in that context but anyway i guess we just need to write the dictionary for rime shedra to at least <laughs> address this at least address this so that we can have conversations <laughs> at least acknowledge that it's used differently by different people persons by different persons who are mm -hmm. selfless as long as we know how we're using it that's that's what helps yeah great did we ever come up with any observable characteristics of of the self <laughs> if we define the self as something other than the person the self is what possesses the the, the mind and body when we say my when we say but then we say mind mind and body and we act every moment like it's my mind and body yeah, yeah, but does it solve the problem if you say this mind this body and get rid of the possessive uh, pronouns uh, yes it does if you can feel that way barbara oh but ego the way you say it's observable um It's that's like a it's it's not a thing. It's still not a thing. Like when you know you see somebody. I mean, sometimes it's not, it's identified as ego, and sometimes it's not. Like you know, people think the other person is like really terrific or something. But um, but the way you initially said, like it's it's just this thing, this um, not thing, but this series of reactions going on. Uh, in, and so it's very kind of empty anyway. Um. So sometimes we use the nomenclature, you know, and we've we've uh, sort of agreed that the common usage of terminology is partially uh, a reflection of our misapprehension of reality. And so we say somebody has a big ego or a small ego. And so who is the somebody that possesses that ego? And you've insulted my ego, or I have to keep my ego in control. So who is it that's keeping? And, and it, so as, as Neil responded finally and said, well, okay, this body, this mind, how does that change the feeling? Uh, you know, it, it all comes down to suffering and the release from suffering, which is what we're striving to achieve because all beings want to be happy. <laughs> what you were just describing is a different, a slightly different use of the term ego, though, right? From, you lost me. From well, that. it seemed like you're talking about ego in that case more in the sort of um not as ego identical to self no okay Th then you're talking more about ego as the sort as a sort of a uh you know like big ego person. as a kind of a oh you're ego and person are similar hmm. uh, yeah I, I have to admit a, a that's, that's and to me it seems like a, ego becomes a subset of the conglomerate that we were talking about the the sort of reactive 
sub a sort of mentally reactive subset of it. Well, define ego for us. Well, which, I mean, again, which way do you want to use it? I mean, there's the Western I want to use it my way. So what's your way? <laughs> that was his ego. <laughs> That's my way. <laughs> this way, not my way. <laughs> I mean, can I get back to your question about this, this body, this mind versus mine? Or do you want or keep Just one more thing. First? Did you, were you able to observe my ego? But you couldn't observe myself, right? That owns my ego. <laughs> Sorry, Emily, go ahead. <laughs> well, I just was going to point out what I guess is the obvious, but when you switch, shift the language from my body to this body, or my mind to this mind, that it's no longer possessive, which means it no longer has that clinging quality. And it's like Morgan was saying earlier, like it, it this does feel like my body, and I treat it like something I own and therefore i have all sorts of attachment to my body my mind my relationships my you know the way i feel about my child and my child's achievements at school and my, you know these things are all very possessive and that's really you know we know the root of suffering so when you sort of say this suddenly everything gets very equitable and just these separate things there's this body there's this house there's this mind there's this um person you know and it it, it completely uh gets rid of that possessiveness and suddenly everything kind of has this equal equality to it that's a big shift isn't it but i don't think it's just conventional semantics neil because i do no. think we are all walking around acting like this is my body it it feels that way it does it's not easy for me to just say, no, this is this, just this body. I can just think of it that way instead. It's not easy to do that. And, and I think it's not just a question of, yeah, flipping a little switch, but there's also, in a sense, you know, there's a set of things that we're each kind of responsible for in a way. It's like, and, and so that's why it's not, I mean, to just, you know, change the terminology and say this as opposed to my, doesn't change the fact that, you know, if I don't feed myself, this body, you know, declines and dies, uh, which, you know, I don't have that influence over Morgan, for example, who's to my right here. <laughs> um, it's so, it, you know, in a sense, that's where it gets tricky. There's a certain aspect of basic functionality that we're involved in, where we do have a certain set of, of responsibilities that fall into the I, me, mine stuff, right? You know, if you don't feed your child or get her to school, or get him, her, I him, forgot. Him, yeah, that's okay. Him <laughs> to school, uh, well, and, you know, or your husband doesn't do it, it won't get done, right? Um, so there's a but way in which that this thing, you know, you can, we can slightly decrease our attachment by thinking this as opposed to my, maybe, but it doesn't entirely change the realities of our day-to-day -day functionality. So I'm just curious. I mean, there, there's the, one part is semantics, but then there's there's still a lot more tied up, I think, in how we behave and what we have to do or what we think we yes, have to do. Yes, but, but I think it's such a, that's such a big part of the Buddhist path is convincing people and convincing ourselves we can still function very well without having that viewpoint. Um, 
you know, I think about how I react when something happens to me versus something happens to my friend, same exact thing. Like it's such a different experience or, you know, like I, um, when this happened the other day with my husband, if I break a glass on the floor versus if he breaks a glass on the floor, I have a very different reaction. I'm actually much more, you know, pissed off at myself if I break it than if he does. Why can't it just be the same reaction? Or yeah, if my child gets teased on the playground, I feel very differently than if someone else's child gets teased on the playground. Why can't it be the same reaction? So, um, but but I do believe through my practice on the Buddhist path, I do believe it's possible to get to a point where you can function perfectly well in the real world without having to do that, having that difference. Thank you, that was great. It's funny how we give ourselves much harder time if we do something wrong than other people. <laughs> yeah, they always say, give yourself the same advice you would give your friend, like in a challenging situation, but it's very yeah. hard to do. Why, why is it we give ourselves a harder time if we break a glass or do something? than other people? Why are we so easy to uh, able to forgive other people? You know, it's, I think it's actually differs for different people, though. Yeah, I'm not sure that's true. Right? Yeah, I don't think that's a universal trait. I think it's, um, you know, some people are harder on themselves, some people are harder on others. One could say it goes back to where we began hours ago. It's like the old Calvinist American Puritan approach that these signs of when you make a mistake, it's a sign of your predestination. It's a sign of like how bad you are, which is a very old puritanical idea, which is, I think, where, where we started. And it, that psychology is very much the English Anglo-American mindset. These are the signs. You have to be very hard on yourself, always. I do have to say, though, I think, not having met every person on the planet yet, but I do think deep down, everyone struggles with self-esteem not self the word self has gotten very complicated here today but you know self-esteem issues and judging themselves even if that manifests as being hard on other people i think everyone including you know people like yeah has that level of insecurity yeah yeah well it's interesting because i mean the stories that they tell about some of the tibetan teachers including, I guess, the Dalai Lama, were quite confused when they first heard about uh, self-esteem issues. They, yeah, they didn't really understand it. So I, I, I think it manifests different ways. I don't know. I'm not sure that there's a complete equality there. I, it, sounded, it seemed like it was kind of a, there's some cultural differences seemed to be observed in that. Yeah, that's, that's, that's true. But I do think Tibetan te teachers, yes are in a different category than most maybe, but I just, I think what I'm trying to say is uh, people, Buddhists aside, when you see people who seem like they're hard on, harder on other people than they are on yourselves, you can bet there's a lot of internal turmoil happening as well. I think that's the assumption yeah. I'm putting forth from a psychological perspective. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. Well, that was great. That was a lot of fun. That was way more fun than going through <laughs> <laughs> and I'm so uh, thankful to Neil. I contacted him beforehand and asked him if he would play this role. And uh, geez, you really played it very well. It was very convincing, Neil. Thank you so much. <laughs>
You're welcome. My pleasure. <laughs> so, returning. <laughs> so, let's uh, conclude. By this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness and death from the ocean of samsara. May I free all beings by the confidence of the golden sun of the great east. May the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you very much. Thanks, Neil. <laughs> <laughs>